Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Derek Child, Head of Equality and Diversity, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to this joint launch of the Equality and Diversity Strategy and the Disability Equality Scheme. I'd particularly like to welcome all those attending here at Walton Hall today, colleagues, our guests, our guest speakers, and of course those who are more scattered through the regions, and indeed today, I don't think it's quite a first, but we are using the webcast service, so potentially this event could be seen by uh, students uh, and others across the UK and beyond. So welcome. We don't quite know, but the technicians will tell us later how, how big an audience we will have. But we did think it was very important to, to highlight these two important uh, new strategies um, which will guide the university forward over the next uh, few years. Uh, I also like to welcome our external guests. Um, now that they will be in individually introduced to you, but also our colleagues from, um, I know at least two uh, delegates here today who are from Milton Keynes Council, who of course we very usefully um, worked in partnership last year uh, alongside the Primary Care Trust uh, as part of our consultation exercise for the uh, preparation of the Disability Equality Scheme. Well, that's my welcomes over uh, for the moment. I'm just going to quickly um, say to you that, uh, uh, if I can find where I am, just to remind you, questions, which we will definitely want to have, will be taken at the end, and the time allowed for that is, will depend on how long, uh, how, how accurate we've been with our timetabling of this morning. Um, but uh, we, uh, we will take questions at the end. I'm just going to now introduce the Equality and Diversity Scheme and then hand over to my colleague, Tony O'Shea, who will take you through the detail. I thought it was important very briefly. We're not really, I'm not terribly keen on looking backward, but I think in the context of the university's work and considerable long-term investment in equality and diversity, and of course we used to call it equal opportunities, uh, I thought it was just good to very quickly secure uh, where we were and where we've got to, um, uh, uh, to the point of perhaps uh, beginning to put together our equality and diversity strategy. It would be no surprise to anybody here to know that um, the university, right from its uh, establishment in 1970, 71, uh, had uh, amongst its many uh, core principles... Um, one of equality, wanting to bring to people, adults in this country, the opportunity to gain access to things which, uh, to, to degree level study, which they'd not had the opportunity to do in the past. So um, it's a surprise to me in a way, um, although we pressed ahead with our dis disabled student services right from the word go, because that was a demand made of us by our customers, by our students. We, we didn't actually, as an institution, um, mature sufficiently to have an equal, uh, equal opportunities policy until 1990, which was some uh, 20 years later. I was uh, very pleased to be involved in those early days of the, what was then called the Equal Opportunities Unit. And that was a freestanding unit set up by the then Vice-Chancellor, Sir John Daniel, um, to um, make sure that we gave equal opportunities a real push at that time, a time when we could 
begin to see from uh, the DFES and, and other um, government uh, agencies that, that getting it right as far as nuclear opportunities um, uh, body was going to be important. Um, you know, and it was really going to become more regulated, which, of course, we, we are now beginning to see in very stark uh, uh, reality. Um, like a lot of institutions, I think it's important to see where equal opportunities and equal, equality and diversity work is located, because I think it says a lot about the kind of seriousness with which uh, it's treated by the institution. And uh, we, we, we've gone through a number of... Um, places uh, and homes over those uh, intervening uh, 17 years. Um, we went, uh, we, we were, as I say, freestanding until 1996. We then became absorbed into a pro-vice-chancellor area for the first time, which was quite helpful because it was linked to quality assurance. Um, and then uh, in 1998, we joined the then uh, pro-vice-chancellor students team, um, enabling us to uh, still... Uh, keep in touch with the Vice-Chancellor Executive in, in a very uh, particular way over uh, issues not just to do with students but staff as well. Um, but again, keeping us uh, centrally located. Around 2003, um, the then Vice, uh, Pro Vice-Chancellor and I were concerned, uh, along with the University Secretary, that we had a, had a structure that was robust enough to take us into this new era of much more regulated equality and diversity legislation. And the outcome of that was that in 2004, we, uh, we put together a new structure uh, with me heading up the team with a new appointment, which uh, uh, turned out to be Tony coming in as a, a senior member of staff to help me with uh, policy, uh, equality and policy development, very key role. Um, and, um, and also... We, as, as governance was, was being reformed at the same time, we, we decided that the Equal Opportunities Committee uh, was one of those uh, bodies which had kind of lived its purpose. And we replaced it with um, an executive body called the Equality and Diversity Management Group, made, of, made up of senior staff from across some key areas in the university. Because one thing I've learned over 17 years working in this area is that you can't a small team of one, two, three, four, five of us can't do it alone. We have to engage our senior colleagues and others in the process of developing equality and diversity. It's everybody's responsibility. I'm very pleased to say that uh, we're now very firmly integrated into uh, what I understand is the UK's largest university strategic unit, just been formed last October. So we're at the heart now of um, a new, a new um, strategic unit which will be, uh, has, the, has the responsibility of overseeing uh, all of the university's strategy and policy development. So I kind of feel we've arrived in the right place um, yeah, that, yeah. to take us through Looks some like uh, still very challenging work in the future. Now it's now my pleasure to introduce Tony O'Shea to you. He's going to... Um, uh, take us on a fairly quick walk through uh, why we developed the strategy, uh, what are the key issues, uh, and what are the key challenges for the future. Uh, over to you, Tony. Thank you very much, Derek. 
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm delighted to have this opportunity to introduce you to the Open University's new equality and diversity strategy. Um, as the time I've got is relatively short, what I want to do is focus primarily on the principles and the key commitments set out in the strategy. I'm going to do this by answering three questions, or attempting to answer three questions at least. Why do we need to have an equality and diversity strategy? What are we doing well at the Open University? And most importantly, what will help us to achieve greater equality at the Open University? Firstly, why do we need an equality and diversity strategy? I think there's many ways we could answer this question. I think different answers will appeal to different people. One possible answer is to discuss human rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and respect. Now, whatever your opinion on universalism, I don't think that anyone would argue against the fact that we all seek to have equal rights and fair treatment. Whether we are born, uh, born with or without a disability, whether we are black, Asian, white, regardless of our sexual orientation, we're entitled to this dignity and respect. And if we feel that we're entitled to this dignity and respect, then it follows that other people will have the same expectations. This strategy therefore commits us to safeguarding, safeguarding the dignity of all our staff and our students, of our partners and others, by providing an environment that is free from overt prejudice. The expectation set out in this strategy is that all are willing and able to challenge inappropriate behaviours. UK legislation tells us we must have a disability scheme, a race policy, a gender scheme, and no doubt other schemes in the future. So another response is, well, the law demands it. Legislation, though, is actually the result of social and political forces for change. Change that's demanded by people with disabilities, by women and men, by lesbian and gay people, by older people, ethnic minorities. So what we're really responding to when we respond to equality legislation is social change driven by the will of society. And of particular relevance today is the desire and the rightful demands of disabled people to be involved in decisions that affect the services they receive from public bodies. Another response to why we need an equality and diversity strategy is that each strand of, uh, while, while each strand, excuse me, of equality has its own history, issues, and explanations, there are actually many threads that weave together the seemingly disparate fabrics. If we think about concepts such as minority, marginalization, we could be referring to any or all strands of equality and diversity, just as we could if we used words such as empowered or positive action. We have, and of course, individuals don't fit neat, neatly into these singular strands of equality. We all have multifaceted ident identities which shape our needs and experiences. So the statement of commitment set out in this strategy is as relevant to a student with a disability, to a black employee, to a white, able-bodied student or member of staff. The fundamental principle that discrimination represents a waste of human resources and a denial of opportunity for individual self-fulfillment is relevant to all people. I might acknowledge at this point that there will be some, some people 
who might suggest that more equality and diversity is political correctness gone mad. Obviously, nobody in this room would, would agree with that. But to those who doubt that we need more equality and diversity, perhaps we might reflect on the state of UK society, some of the key facts considered by the recent UK Equalities Review, particularly in the area of education and employment. The review wasn't all negative. For example, at GCSE level, um, some ethnic minority groups are now, now closing the attainment gap. And the gap between the average employment rates and employment rates in the most deprived local authorities is also closing. But some other statistics might give us pause for thought. 24% of people with disabilities aged 16 to 24 have no qualifications, compared to 13% of non-disabled people. There are high proportions of Bangladeshis and Pakistanis without any qualifications. 43% of disabled men and 51% of disabled women are economically inactive, compared to a rate of 15% for those who are not disabled. And someone made redundant after 50 is eight times less likely to return to work than a younger person. Now, I could go on, but there isn't time today. I think the point I want to make is that inequality of outcome is actually quite pervasive in UK society. So there's therefore a very clear need for our university to continue to think strategically about equality and diversity. My second question is, what are we doing well? Now, I think it would be easy for me to say, well, the OU has a long commitment to equality and diversity and social justice, and I could probably leave it at that. Um, but that would be a bit of a cop-out. So um, I think I want to be a bit more specific. So where is the evidence of reducing inequality and commitment at the Open University? We've seen a trend over many years of increasing representation of women in higher grades. In our student body and internal staff base, we've seen increasing ethnic diversity. We've created multi-faith prayer facilities at Walton Hall. We've recently made significant new investment in our widening participation function. We've developed curriculum for women returning to science, engineering, and technology. And specific to disability equality, we've de developed a sector-wide resource making your teaching inclusive and have had a staff disability advisory team in place for 16 years and are continuing to mainstream disability access in course development so we can avoid as much as possible the need to make time-consuming and costly adjustments later. And as this new strategy emphasizes, we will, we have, and will continue to go beyond legislative requirements. For example, in sexual orientation equality, we've recently joined Stonewall's Diversity Champions Program. This is by no means an exhaustive list, and I'm sure that there will be colleagues who will, will say I've forgotten some important project or initiative. What I wanted to do was to give a flavor um, to, or to remind you of the important work that's led by many of our colleagues. This is work that demonstrates our ongoing commitment to equality, diversity, and social justice. Despite this commitment, and the examples I've given, the evidence show us that we have much more to do, which leads me to my third question. 
What will help us to achieve greater equality? I think there are many specific things we can and should do, and these are outlined in the action plans linked to each of the equality schemes. Today we're going to hear much more about what we've committed to do in, in the area of disability equality over the next three years. But across all strands, I would suggest that there are a number of catalysts for achieving greater equality. The first of these is structural change. What I mean by this is the way that we bring, to use a cliche, equality from the margins to the mainstream, the ways in which we integrate equality into our core business, the ways in which we ensure that all those who lead the institution through projects, initiatives, policy development, do so with an understanding of how the decisions they make affect different groups. So integrating equality and diversity into our core strategies, into our planning framework, and fostering an environment whereby equality impact assessment becomes the norm will help us to ensure that we don't create new inequalities and that we actually seek out opportunities for reducing existing ones. Another catalyst that will help us achieve greater equality is personal development and learning. A core principle of this strategy is the recognition that achieving greater equality, and as Derek said earlier, requires the active support of the entire university community. And I think that most people, or certainly at least everybody in this room and those people listening, are on board. We do subscribe to the principle that we want to reduce inequalities. But we can't expect active support unless we give people the tools that they need. And I think one of the most important of these is knowledge and understanding of difference. By enabling all of our community to see the world from different standpoints, and through the lived experiences of others, we will create a frame of mind and thoughtfulness that enables decisions to be taken with a greater knowledge of their likely impacts. And an example of how we're making this a reality is through the personal leadership program, whereby we're giving colleagues the opportunity to consider how their behaviors impact on others and how conditioning influences our response to difference. The final catalyst I want to talk about is positive action. Within this strategy, we've committed to challenging patterns of inequality through programs of positive action. But what do we mean by this? Positive action is the introduction of measures targeting particular individuals or groups in order to reduce known inequality. It is legitimate for us to target our resources where they're most needed. We can and should introduce a particular initiative or service for one group at the exclusion of others where it's appropriate to do so. While in principle we're con committed to positive action and some of the initiatives I mentioned earlier are actually good examples of this, there are some known inequalities at the Open University that are particularly challenging. Lower levels of attainment of students from some ethnic minority groups, relatively low numbers of disabled people in the workforce, and a lack of diversity in our associate lecturer profile. Again, I can say with some confidence that there are initiatives in each of these areas. And importantly, I think we need to reflect on the core commitment of this strategy, which is that we will seek 
innovative solutions. We have to do this because more of the same usually doesn't deliver the required change. To conclude, I've provided some possible answers to the questions, why do we need an equality and diversity strategy? What are we doing well? And what will help to bring about greater equality? I think I may have omitted to say that actually there would be a final question, but that was one for you to answer. The new strategy is the result of extensive consultation processes, and therefore I hope that we can all, that you can all, subscribe to the commitments and principles that it contains. So the question then for each of us, for you individually, is what do I need to do or do differently to make these commitments a reality? What do I need to do to make it happen? But you don't need to answer that right now because my time is up. I'll hand you back to our chair, Derek. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Tony. That was, that was a very interesting... Uh, Very interesting presentation, and I, I think it underlines the fact that an organization of this size, scale, and complexity um, uh, needs an equality and diversity strategy that guides us. It's going to be our roadmap for the next uh, five years. It's going to take us through to 2011. Uh, I'm sure that the Equality and Diversity Management Group will be reviewing it probably at about the three-year stage because, as I said earlier, change in this area is very rapid. Um, before we break, I should just remind you that you've all got a quiz. There are no prizes, I'm afraid, uh, but it was a quiz um, around disability that I was given permission by Skill, the National Bureau for Students with Disabilities, to adapt and use today. And I, I took part in this quiz myself, um, uh, along with my colleague to my right, Alan Hurst, uh, at Skill's annual conference in November. Uh, annual higher education conference, and I, I struggled with it, as, as did one or two other colleagues, and I thought, well, why not share it with you today? It's, not, it's, um, it, it's surprising what you don't know until you look at these questions. Um, uh, there, will be, uh, there, there probably won't be an opportunity to go through each question at the end, but Lynn will be um, circulating the uh, answers um, to you at the end, and we'll be putting them up on the internet for those who are joining us from a distance. We're going to take a very short break now so that we can get a quick photo call. It's an opportunity for you to um, uh, grab a coffee um, and then I shall hand over to my colleague uh, Will Swan, who's Director of Students, who's kindly joined us today and has been the main sponsor for the Disability Equality Scheme to introduce our guest, Lord Lowe of Dalston, who's... Um, going to talk to us about disability rights in the 21st century. Thank you. We'll just have a short break.
Okay. I think we're ready to move on. Um, if I could just, um, if I could just say in two sentences, uh, one of the really useful things that happened um, about two years ago, I think we, we instead of a new Pro Vice Chancellor students. We, there was a bit of a rethink, and we have a director of students now who is in the name of Will Swan. Many of you will know him. I think it was extremely good news that we got him because part of his uh, vast um, areas of responsibility through the Vice-Chancellor Executive is equal opportunities. So he and I and the University Secretary get together on quite a regular basis to talk about strategic issues. Um, and um, what you might not know is that uh, I've known Will over many years because of his, and so does Colin, in fact, because of his academic interest in special needs. So he, he, he came to this area of work with a, a running start, which I think was very good news for all of us. Over to you, Will. Hey, I think that counts as a warm-up for the warm-up man. Um, and I am indeed the warm-up man uh, for our, our next speaker, and uh, I'm allocated five minutes, and I have to say, given the distinction of, of the person you're about to hear from, I'm not sure that five minutes is, is, is quite enough. Um, I first met uh, Colin when he was uh, but a, a humble law academic at the University of Leeds, uh, uh, beginning uh, at that stage to make a serious career for himself in the field of of disability rights, uh, and, and, and now here, here he is, ennobled and, and really a leading international figure. So we are extremely lucky uh, to have him with us. Um, Colin uh, has been chairman of the Royal National Institute of the Blind since 2000, and uh, that's uh, after 10 years as vice chair. Uh, and a leading member of the executive since 1975. He has been president of the European Blind Union since 2003, a lay member of the Special Educational Needs and Disability Tribunal since 1994. In 2000, he was awarded the CBE, uh, and last year uh, he was uh, elevated to the House of Lords, where he sits as a crossbencher. As I explained, he started his career as a lecturer in law and criminology at Leeds. He moved on uh, in 1984 to become the uh, director of the disability resource team in London. Uh, he was a senior research fellow at City University, where he remains uh, as a visiting professor. Um, he's a former member of the Disability Rights Commission uh, and of the Disability Rights Task Force, and in that capacity he has played a central role uh, in advising government on the reforms that led to the Special Educational Needs and Disability Act uh, 2001 and the Disability Discrimination Act 2005. So you have here somebody who knows the score. Uh, and we really couldn't wish for anybody better. But Colin is not just very welcome uh, in his own right, incidentally, as that perfect mix of academic and political activist, which goes down so well at the Open University, um, but, but, but also as somebody who represents the RNIB, with whom the university has had a long-standing and very fruitful uh, relationship. Uh, you may or may not know that our first audio recording center uh, in 1989 was generously supported by the RNIB, who met salary and equipment costs during its early development. 
Um, and later on, I do know that uh, Lord Lowe and Sir John Wall, who was his predecessor uh, as, as um, uh, chair of RNIB, who I'd like to welcome here today, sitting over there uh, towards the front, uh, will be visiting the new audio recording centre on East Campus this afternoon. Uh, I'm pleased to say that they won't be facing the kinds of challenges they would have faced yesterday, because yesterday the entire building had to be evacuated because somebody smelled gas in the audio recording centre. Um, uh, and it turned out to be, I hate to tell you, a decaying animal. Um, but the offending rodent has now been removed, uh, and it is safe for you to go around. And when, when, uh, when you and others uh, go, go around, you will have an opportunity to see some of the new approaches we're taking uh, to technology in that area, uh, making the very best uh, of what the e-world has to offer us uh, in the interests of our um, visually impaired students. Um, Colin's attendance here indicates that this is quite a significant moment for the university. You don't get somebody of his stature for nothing. Uh, our disability equality scheme, I know, has, is widely uh, praised and well-regarded outside the university. It's a big step forward for us. We'll be talking about that in more detail later on. Uh, and Colin is going to help us to understand some of the deeper background uh, to the existence of disability equality schemes and to the existence of our disability equality scheme, particularly through um, the stages in the development of the disability rights movement. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Colin Lowe. Will, thank, thank you very much indeed uh, for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, I don't envy you um, having been given the task to, in, to take five minutes over in, in introducing me. Uh, I rather felt that you were having to spin it out a bit there to fill five, five minutes. But thank, thank you very much in, indeed. Now, um, I've been asked to talk on, on the paper. It says the national and international view. Um, when I saw that, I felt a bit like... Um, the politician, the minister, who went to open some uh, facility, and uh, he'd, been, um, he'd been written a speech by his civil servants uh, who didn't like him at all. And um, <clears throat> uh, so they wrote him a speech which began, of course, uh, when considering the work of uh, this institution, it's important to see the institution in its uh, local setting and he talked about the links that the, uh, the place had uh, with its local community. And then he went on to say he had another passage which um, located the local community in the national perspective. Then he said, but that, you know, that's not enough. One has to see, um, see it nationally with, with, within Europe. And then there was a passage on Europe. And, and finally, it's important to appreciate the global dimension. And he turned over to page six and it said, uh, from here, you're on your own. <laughs> so um, uh, I felt a bit like that when I got to page, page six, uh, which was headed the international uh, perspective. Um, and so I think I'm, I'm rather going to uh, stick uh, to the national perspective. There's, a, there's a, enough background in that um, to uh, fill my time. Derek said that um, <clears throat> he wasn't um, one for looking back, uh, but I think he has asked me to do the looking back a bit. Um, 
you've already heard um, uh, about the equality and diversity strategy as a background and a context for the disability equality scheme, which we're going to hear more about in a, in a minute. And I'm going to talk about the background and the lead up to disability schemes um, in the development of uh, disability rights um, in, in, in this country. I go back first of all to um, a conference uh, staged by the, the AUT, the Association of University Teachers in, in 1984, where I was asked to speak about uh, good practice in relation to uh, uh, disability in universities. And I, I talked about all the things that um, universities ought to be doing. Um, but I ended my talk uh, with a, a threat um, I said, uh, it is really important that you do these things because uh, if you don't, um, take it from me uh, that uh, within uh, quite a small number of years, uh, there will be anti-discrimination legislation uh, which will be compelling you to, to do it. And um, not, not, not all my prophecies have come true, but that one certainly has. Of course, um, <clears throat> when I was talking about the possible need uh, for some compulsion in relation to um, getting universities to uh, do the, the right thing by disabled people, of course, I wasn't thinking of the open university. Uh, the open university from its inception uh, has had a distinguished record in provision for um, disabled uh, students. Indeed, um, it set out, when, when it uh, began life, it set out to make a particular strength of provision for disadvantaged students of all kinds, those who for one reason or another had been excluded from higher education or at any rate not found their way into it, including of course uh, disabled students. Um, I remember uh, back at the beginning there was a liaison commission, a liaison committee uh, with the disabled, which some of our um, members were um, were members of, and um, even at the, right back at the beginning, I always thought of the Open University as an institution which reached out to disabled people and not one where uh, you had to batter down the doors. Um, and provision for blind and partially sighted students uh, has been uh, particularly strong. Um, Indeed, I understand from Derek that we now have um, 1,200 uh, blind and partially students here, partially sighted students here, which is um, quite, quite remarkable. I was gobsmacked when I read that figure the other night. <clears throat> and because of the particular concern for provision for blind and partially sighted students, the Open University has had a strong relationship with RNIB, uh, uh, going back um, quite a long way, as, as Will mentioned. And uh, we at RNIB are very proud to have been part of that. Uh, the RNIB uh, in the 80s had a program of uh, set, setting up regional recording centers throughout the country. And it uh, made a lot of sense, given the Open University's commitment to blind and partially sighted students, to establish a recording center here, uh, which it did in 1989. Uh, Will has mentioned this. It's now been taken over uh, by the Open University itself, and we are um, no longer uh, supporting it in the, in the same way, though um, I believe that um, um, 
many of the recordings that are made here find their way into our catalogues. So there's still uh, a good uh, liaison between us in, in, in that way. Um, and I can certainly testify that uh, Sir John and I are looking forward to uh, seeing the centre this, af this afternoon. In fact, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this is my first visit to the Open University, and I'm, I'm look, looking forward to making up for, for lost time. But as I said, um, I'm going to talk about the, um, the national context for all of this. Um, as you're no, to, no doubt aware, the current regulatory framework for further and higher education is to be found in the Further and Higher Education Act of uh, 1992. I mean, there have been subsequent additions, but that is the, the basic legislative uh, framework. But the, the, the 92 Act has very little to say about disability. In this respect, the legislation regarding higher education contrasts sharply uh, with legislation on um, school-age education. Uh, the, the major act there was the 1993 Act, and um, I'm pleased to say that um, thanks to the uh, activities of a coalition of, um, uh, of, of lobbyists, uh, uh, almost half of the uh, the Education Act 1993 is actually uh, dedicated to provision for, uh, provision for disabled children. There wasn't uh, very much in it um, when it appeared as a draft, a draft bill, but uh, thanks to the activities of RNIB and other organizations, uh, that was put right, and the, uh, the whole framework for uh, providing for the, the framework that we, we, we now have for providing for uh, disabled children at, uh, at, at, at school level uh, is to be found in the uh, Education Act of 1993, but not so uh, higher education. Um, uh, the Higher Education Funding Council for England uh, was required to have regard to the needs of disabled persons, um, and it initiated and funded a number of projects and policies on support for disabled students uh, in higher education from 1992 onwards. But uh, there were no obligations laid on uh, universities and other institutions of higher education at that time. Uh, we then move forward to the Disability Discrimination Act of 1995, and um, there wasn't much, in uh, wasn't much on education there either, uh, certainly not on higher education. The, uh, I, I remember a day when that legislation was going through Parliament that um, we at RNIB, uh, the, 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 the legislation, the, the, the draft legislation was very much criticized uh, amongst many other things for uh, its total failure to deal with education total failure to deal with discrimination in education. And I remember the day when uh, a phone call came to us uh, from the DFEE, Department for Education and Employment, as it was called then, um, in which uh, they said that they realized that the act had come under a lot of criticism for not dealing with education. And they said, can you suggest to us uh, some measures uh, that we might put in the legislation 
uh, that wouldn't cost anything. Um, so uh, we, we made a few suggestions, and uh, in, so you'll find that part four of that act, the, 1994 act, the 1995 Disability Discrimination Act, does uh, deal in a rather cursory way with education, and uh, institutions uh, from that time were required to publish disability statements. Um, you, some of you may remember them, but uh, these didn't really amount to very much. Uh, all that you were required to do uh, was to produce a statement of the facilities which, it, which existed at the university. I mean, you could produce a statement saying there are no facilities uh, for disabled people at the university, and that would pass muster. That was all you were required to do. Uh, so it wasn't really a vehicle, the disability statement, wasn't really a vehicle for requiring institutions uh, to do anything more than they were uh, actually doing already. Uh, of course, institutions did have to ensure that they complied with the other parts of the, the DDA, for example, in relation to the employment of staff and provision of residential services and non-educational non, non goods and services like libraries and sports facilities, which are, were also open to the, the, the general public. So um, you could get something out of the... Um, uh, the, D, the DDA uh, for uh, putting a bit of pressure on institutions, uh, but not very much in relation to the educational provision except the uh, disability statements which I've mentioned. Uh, we now move on a little bit to um, October 19, 1999 when the Quality Assurance Agency uh, published its uh, Code of Practice, Section 3 of which deals with students with disabilities. And here, the screw does begin to turn on institutions a little bit. Uh, the Code is very comprehensive and covers access to all aspects of academic life, from uh, admissions to graduation. It uh, states specifically that institutions should ensure that in all their policies, procedures, and activities, including strategic planning and resource allocation, consideration is given to the means of enabling disabled students' participation in all aspects of the academic and social life of the institution. It further states that program specifications should include no unnecessary barriers to access by disabled people. The delivery of programs uh, should take into account the needs of disabled people or, where appropriate, be adapted to accommodate their individual requirements. And um, the QAA regime is subject to inspection. Uh, every now and then, um, the uh, inspectors call uh, to see how the university is delivering against the um, precepts of the um, QAA's code of practice, and um, some of us, uh, some people got really quite enthusiastic about the QAA's co code of practice, including myself, and I thought that this uh, was really uh, quite a good framework for getting universities to do more uh, about uh, disability, and um, I think probably it is. I think that the, the QAA code of practice uh, it does contain a lot of good practice, and there, there, it, it does constitute a bit of pressure on the universities, knowing that they will be inspected from time to time, uh, to take on board its uh, injunctions. But I, I remember uh, talking to somebody at Skill, 
and uh, waxing enthusiastic about this new, re new regime of the, uh, uh, the Quality Assurance Agency. And I said, and, you know, the inspectors will be coming round uh, to make sure that, um, you know, they're keeping up to the, the mark. And whoever it was I, I was, was talking to um, said to me, um, yeah, but you realize that on, on average, the inspectors are only going to be able to get round each institution once every 13 years. Uh, or at least um, they probably go to the institution more, but a, a department is only likely to be inspected on average once every 13 years. So that does help to put it um, a little bit in, uh, in perspective. Now, uh, I've said that the, uh, the DDA um, is uh, inadequate, and uh, Will mentioned that I was on a, a task force that was set up by the Labour government when it came in in 1997 to... Uh, uh, recommend improvements to disability legislation and clearly we had education very much in our sights and as a result of the um, task forces recommendations and a little bit of nifty footwork by one of our members uh, the government did commit itself to uh, legislating uh, against discrimination in education which it, it did in 2000 it brought in a bill uh, in the year 2000 uh, which became the um, Sender Special Education, and, uh, Special Education Needs and Disability Act of uh, 2001. This amendment, this amends and significantly strengthens the, the DDA and does have major implications for higher education institutions, uh, for the way the curriculum is delivered and the way that students are supported. The Act makes it unlawful to discriminate against a disabled person in relation to any of the activities of the institution. Uh, this includes not only education, but residential accommodation, uh, catering and library facilities, careers, welfare, and leisure services. Uh, in order to avoid discrimination, the Act places two specific duties on further and higher education institutions. Um, first, not to treat disabled people less favorably uh, than non-disabled people without justification. And secondly, to make reasonable adjustments to ensure that people who are disabled uh, aren't put at a substantial disadvantage in accessing higher education compared with people who are not disabled. Now, this uh, second duty, the duty to make reasonable adjustments, is of uh, great importance because the uh, reasonable adjustments duty, which uh, goes throughout all um, anti-discrimination legislation on disability, is a distinctive feature of disability discrimination legislation. You don't find it in um, uh, sex discrimination or race discrimination legislation where the, the obligation um, by and large is to uh, treat people equally. In disability discrimination legislation, it's recognized that in order to level the playing field, you may need to make extra provision uh, for disabled people. So if a disabled person is at a substantial disadvantage, the education provider is required to take such steps as are reasonable to prevent that disadvantage. This might include uh, changes to policies and practices, changes to course requirements or work placements, changes to physical features of buildings, the provision of interpreters or other support workers, uh, the delivery of courses in alternative ways, or the provision of materials in other formats. And should a student uh, wish to make a complaint of discrimination and conciliation can't be achieved through mediation, uh, they can bring uh, action uh, 
in the county court, and the court can order the institution to comply with the legislation and can award damages uh, to the individual. So things are beginning to get serious. Um, not that there have been uh, many actions, but uh, the, the, the threat or possibility of them uh, is lurking in the, in the background. Now, the duty to make reasonable adjustments is a duty to disabled people generally, not just to particular individuals. This anticipatory aspect effectively means that providers must consider what sort of adjustments may be necessary for disabled people in the future, disabled people in general in the future, and where appropriate, make adjustments in advance. The anticipatory nature of the legislation should mean that the needs of some disabled students will be met automatically. In other cases, adjustments will need to be made for individuals in response to particular needs. There will thus be a responsibility on education providers to do what they can to find out whether individuals have disability-related needs. Um, so the accent, because of the anticipatory nature of the duty, the accent is shifting from the in individual um, to uh, make known what they require and ask for it. The, uh, the responsibility is shifting to the institution to, and, and, and to, to research and anticipate the needs and put appropriate provision in place. The culmination of this process um, is to be found in the disability equality duty, uh, which uh, was legislated for in uh, the latest piece of legislation, the Disability Discrimination Act of 2005. Um, from last December, a new duty was introduced to promote disability equality uh, for the public sector. It means that all government departments and public authorities, from NHS, NHS trusts to schools and local authorities, uh, must build disability equality into everything uh, they do. So it's uh, further ratcheting up the uh, obligation to make anticipatory uh, provision. This obviously applies to universities and provides a powerful tool for tackling institutional discrimination. Um, that means, so far as uh, higher education is concerned, uh, the duty requires universities, when carrying out their functions, to have due regard to the need to do six things. Firstly, to promote equality of opportunity between disabled and other people, to eliminate discrimination that's unlawful under the DDA, to eliminate disability-related harassment, to promote positive attitudes towards disabled people, to encourage participation by disabled people in public life, and to take steps to meet disabled people's needs, even if this requires more favorable treatment. These elements make up the duty to promote disability equality and are referred to as the general duty. Universities also have specific duties which provide a clear framework for meeting the general duty. Central to the specific duties is the requirement to produce a disability equality scheme. And this is what I've been leading up to all along. So it's on the basis of this that we're going to hear about the OU's dis dis disability equality scheme, which we're launching this morning. Schemes should include an action plan. They should involve disabled people in its preparation and be able to demonstrate that action has been taken. Institutions must report on progress every year and review and revise the scheme every three years. 
The central aim of the general duty is to promote equality of opportunity, opportunity between disabled and non-disabled people. The other elements of the general duty support this aim and need to be given due regard in their own, in, in their own right. Due regard means that authorities should give due weight to the need to promote disability equality in proportion to its relevance. The duty applies to all the functions of a university, not just educational provision. Um, so it applies, applies also to employment and service delivery. Uh, for example, uh, budget setting, co uh, course validation, procurement, and strategic planning. The six elements of the general duty and each of the requirements of the specific duties are statutory requirements and must be met. How a university fulfills these requirements is, however, to some extent flexible and dependent on a number of factors, including uh, the nature and size of the institution and progress already made. But responsibility for making sure that the duty is met lies with senior staff in each institution. So I, I think that uh, is really, that, that brings me to where I wanted to get to, um, to the disability equality scheme. And uh, what I've gone through describes the, uh, the background to it and the uh, lead up to it uh, with ever more targeted legislation. But it's also leading up to, I think, uh, the one most important thing that I wanted to say about the disability equality scheme, and that is the importance of the scheme being owned by the whole university. I've heard of institutions, um, organizations anyway, um, and haven't heard of a university, but uh, I've heard of organizations where when the, the obligation to, the, the requirement to um, produce a uh, disability equality scheme comes across the chief executive's desk, uh, they say, uh, they, they have, their reflex action is to say, oh, we've got a disability officer, uh, send them a note, uh, they'll produce a scheme. Uh, they produce a scheme, it might be agreed by a committee, and, but, but if nothing else is done, it just goes on a shelf. So it's vitally important if the scheme is to mean anything that um, it is dis disseminated um, right throughout the organization and uh, steps are taken by training and otherwise uh, to build it into the very fabric of all the organization's activities. And I think we can see uh, how seriously the Open University is taking that um, obligation today when, uh, we, re we, when we see uh, that this event is going out on video co conference and is being webcast. So if that doesn't bring a few more people into the fold, uh, I don't know what will. But that's obviously only a start, and I know that Derek and his colleagues will be working hard to embed the equality scheme uh, in the, uh, right, through all the, all, right throughout the organization uh, from, from now on. But I think the important thing uh, to kick the whole process off is to hear more about the, the scheme itself. And this, I think, uh, will be the subject of our next contributor. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
Can you introduce um can you introduce Thank you very much indeed, uh, Colin. I think having an endorsement from someone who's been a pivotal part of uh, uh, rights legislation um, over the last decade or more um, is, is really helpful to us in um, profiling what we consider to be uh, a reaffirmation of our commitment to equality and diversity, and in this case, disability equality. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm now going to hand to my two colleagues. Um, no, no, no. I'm handing to Will. I beg your pardon. I've, I've got in the muddle. I haven't read my braille properly. I'm now going to hand back to Will Swan, who's going to um, introduce the scheme. As I say, Will's been the major sponsor of the scheme, and he's going to introduce it. Thank you, Will. Lynn Watkinson tells me that if I, if I press the B key, it'll pop up onto the screen. So this is a new one on me. My goodness, it did. Do you know if I press it again, it disappears? There we are. Um, okay. Um, now, one of the penalties of um, my timetable is it doesn't give me a lot of time to, to, to get things straight. So I generally have time to get things ready for myself, not necessarily to get things ready for other people. So one of the risks I'm taking is that actually um, Angela Schofield and Christine Tennant, who are following this, um, don't know exactly what I'm going to say. Um, they've seen the briefing that Derek gave me, which is what he wanted me to say, but they don't know whether I'm going to behave myself and do that. So if by any way um, I, uh, I, I steal your thunder, I apologize uh, in advance, Angela and Christine, uh, and uh, I'll make it up afterwards. Okay, some things that I want to say. Um, first of all, a word from the sponsor. Um, so I, uh, I am that uh, formal title, the sponsor for the uh, project that created the Disability Equality Scheme. And I'm going to say just a little bit about the process of, of, of creating the, the scheme and, and what's important about it. Um, I, I also represent uh, the institution uh, as a whole. Uh, and, and to a degree, I'm standing in for the Vice Chancellor who provided uh, an excellent introduction to the scheme. So it's a little bit about how the scheme fits in uh, to the wider institution. Um, and then I'm going to give you a perspective from me. One of the strange things that happens when you get to the sort of job that I do is, is suddenly people stop behaving towards you as if you're Will Swan and a human being and start behaving towards you as if you're dean or director students. I actually had a life before uh, I, I became a, a dean and a director student, and it was, in fact, in the field of inclusive education for a, a, a lot of the time. Um, and actually, that's quite helpful in giving you a sense of perspective, because what you've just heard from, 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 from Colin indicates just how far we have come uh, in the past 30 years or so. I graduated in 1973. Uh, the first job that I did was as a research officer on a project by a body that was run by, I think, called the Schools Council. And the job of that project was to develop curricula for children who we would now call children with severe learning difficulties, but who in 1973 we called severely subnormal. 
Um, now, that kind of makes you squirm. That's first mark of how far we've come. Second mark is, why did that project exist? That project existed because the school's council, which was responsible for the, developing the curriculum across the school system, had suddenly acquired a new group of people for which it had responsibilities. Because up until 1971, that group of children were deemed unsuitable for education in school and were provided for in things called junior training centers, were actually excluded entirely from the education system. And you only have to go back another six years to 1965 um, to reach the point at which those children stopped being deemed ineducable. Okay? Only 30 years ago. Boy, have we come a long way. So I'll come back to... Um, uh, myself and my history uh, it, it, towards the end. Okay, word from the sponsor first of all. Um, here we are with the disability equality scheme. How did we get here? Well, first of all, we saw the opportunity. Uh, and Colin's absolutely right. It would have been so easy for us just to say, oh gosh, we've got a new piece of legislation. We'd better comply quick. There was absolutely no need for us or no reason for us to do this. Producing the scheme was a chance for us, an opportunity for us to ask, what are we doing well? What could we do better? Uh, second thing is we got the right people to run the project, and I particularly want to recognize the work that Angela Schofield did as um, chair of the project steering group, uh, and Christine Tennant, who was consultant to the project team, but to everybody else here and who's not here today who contributed to the development of the scheme. Thank you very much. Um, we involved disabled students and staff and disabled people in the community in Milton Keynes in the preparation of the scheme. We spent a lot of time, they spent a lot of time, listening to voices um, about their experience so that we could assess where we were up to, what might we need to do next. So we had an event that was done in partnership with Milton Keynes Council, and I'm really pleased to say that Deborah Cooper is here from, from the Council today, um, from Milton Keynes Primary Care Trust, and that was supported by the Milton Keynes Centre for Integrated Living. So we tied ourselves um, to the community uh, of people with disabilities around us, and that was partly because we are, in a sense, part of Milton Keynes, but also they were the people we could get hold of, who are the people with perspectives that we don't often hear from the people who are not inside the Open University community at the moment. About 170 students with disabilities responded to an invitation to consult. We set up an electronic conference for disabled students. Um, we invited the involvement of staff uh, with disabilities, and about 15 staff responded to that invitation. Uh, we engaged the unions as well. So we listened to a wide range. The next thing that we did was we recognized our achievements. It's always so much better to, to, to create change on the basis of a secure sense that you're doing the right thing at the moment rather than saying, depress everybody and say, well, we're not up to scratch, we better do something else. Because in many ways we are up to scratch. Our mission at the Open University is a very firm foundation for this scheme. Um, you know that expression so well that we are open to people, open to places, open to methods, and open to ideas. Our mission says that we promote educational opportunity and social justice by providing high-quality university education for all who wish to realize their ambition and fulfill their potential. 
you couldn't wish for a better basis uh, for a university that is committed to equality and diversity. And we do reflect that in our action, uh, in the way that we plan the university strategy as a whole. Just remember that two of our ten strategic priorities are promoting fair access for all and diversifying and developing our staff base. One other indication of something that we've done right. The 2005 end of course survey, which asked students, um, students with disabilities, if you had additional requirements arising from a disability or specific learning difficulty, to what extent were those needs met by the Open University? And I'm very pleased to tell you that 56% said they were very satisfied with that, and 29% said they were fairly satisfied with it. Still leaves us with 15% who were neither fairly or very satisfied. So a huge uh, amount of achievement and success in there, but some way to go. And then finally, in drawing up the scheme, we reflected on the realities um, of our performance. And a few figures for you. 1.6% of our internal staff, that's not including our associate lecturers, have declared disabilities. 1.6% isn't very large. 3.6% of associate lecturers have declared disabilities. And that's been fairly static for some time now. So there's an area in which we felt that we could do better. 6.1% in 2004-05 of all our students had declared disabilities, which is pretty good. On the other hand, 3.6% of new students, so a much smaller proportion of new students with disabilities than of all students. And what does that tell us? Well, one thing it probably tells us is that we are not a monopoly in this area anymore. Time was when we were virtually the only people um, who could offer part-time higher education opportunities for people with disabilities, not the case anymore. Um, another thing, completion rate. How many students get to the end of their course and submit the final assignment? Not necessarily pass it, just submit it. Well, uh, in 2004-05, when we look at all students, 68.2%. When we look at students with disabilities, 59.4% quite a gap, what could we do to close it? Okay. So what does this scheme do? You'll be hearing much more about the detail, but for me, it does some fairly basic things. First of all, it reaffirms our inclusive values, and I want to quote to you what the Vice-Chancellor said in the introduction of the scheme. Our aim is to be a truly inclusive organization where individual differences are respected, where staff and students are treated solely on their merits, and where everyone has a fair opportunity to fulfill their potential. Next, it commits us to action. Uh, the law says we have to publish a scheme. Absolutely fine. The law also says once we've published what we're going to do, we've got to do it. And so we are committed to a whole series of actions. The responsibility for those actions are distributed very widely. They aren't just a few specialists. They include all the deans, they include all the regional directors, they include all the members of the vice-chancellor's executive, they include the director of human resources, and of course they're all really just placeholders for the people who are going to do the work on the ground. So right the way through the organization, this scheme is going to have an impact. Um, 
And finally, the scheme makes us accountable for the outcomes because not only do we have to do what we say we're going to do, but in three years' time, we will have to publish a report on the extent to which we've done it. So this is not something that we can say, paper exercise, put it in the drawer. Little bit um, of a view from the institution. What is it that we actually do for our students? Well, in very simple terms, first of all, we create opportunities that did not exist before. Secondly, we connect people to those opportunities, particularly through our regional centres. Third, we use the best resources at our disposal. Fourth, we value and respond to diversity within our boundaries. And fifth, we contribute to equality and diversity beyond our boundaries. So that's a fairly basic set of accounts of what it is that we're up to. And taking that, I think that this scheme shows that there are opportunities that we have yet to create. There are people who we have yet to connect to them. There are resources that we have yet to exploit effectively. There are ways in which we can respond better than we do at the moment to the diversity that is among, amongst us. And I think there are contributions to society that we have yet to make. And I just want to uh, now illustrate a few of the things that we could be doing that are going to challenge us in future. We are about to enter a major period of change right the way through higher education as a result of the Leach Review um, on skills. And that's going to get us much more involved in, in work-based learning. We're already involved in work-based learning and engaging employers in the development of our curriculum, in the delivery of our curriculum, uh, and in providing and creating those opportunities for students. We must make sure as part of that that our, our disabled students have new opportunities created for them. And we're only beginning to think about how we might do that. Got that well embedded in certain parts of the curriculum, but there's a lot for us to do. Secondly, we have to understand why it is that the percentage of students with disabilities coming to us as new students is actually on the decline at the moment. And we have to ask whether that's all right, and perhaps it is, because maybe they're going somewhere else now, and that's going to be equally good. However, I would like to think that we could halt that decline. And to do that, we have to understand why it's going on. And one of the things that we have to understand more, more about is how we appear to people with disabilities when they come to us for the first time. So one of the things we're doing at the moment is mystery shopping um, our, our student registration inquiry service, and we're employing people with disabilities to phone up and see what kind of response uh, they get. We have to narrow that completion gap and try and get the completion rate for disabled students closer to the average. There is so much that we can do to make the best of the most of the digital world. We've got a virtual learning environment, critically important that that is fully accessible and that we use those opportunities. Um, colleagues in Disabled Student Services doing a huge amount of important work introducing new international standards uh, to our audio recording system for everybody's benefits. We have to guarantee that our qualifications are accessible because it's still the case that people can embark on a qualification, do a series of courses, and then suddenly discover that there's a key course out there that for some reason isn't accessible and it's stopping them getting their qualification. 
We need to improve the information that we give to, to, to our students on accessibility. Big project to develop a much more rigorous database uh, on accessibility of courses. All that's about students, and let me just give you one example of what we, what we can do uh, for staff. We have just introduced a major new system called Voice. It's a customer relationship management system. We bought it from the biggest supplier of customer relationship management systems in the world, Siebel. And it is not properly accessible for people with visual impairments. And it should be. And we are trying to get Siebel to help us to, that, to do that. And you know, they haven't got a solution. And we're going to crack on with that until we fix it. But that's an indication of the fact that we can't rest on our laurels. So a few things. Finally, a perspective from me before I hand over to uh, Angela uh, and, and Christine. One of the things that um, I used to do uh, many years ago when I was uh, an academic in uh, um, what was then the School of Education um, was I acted as advocate for, for parents with disabilities um, who found uh, that although they wanted their children to go to mainstream schools, um, uh, they were unable to do so uh, because the uh, local authority uh, wanted their children to go to special schools. Um, and um, it provided me with an enormous uh, opportunity, a great opportunity, to understand what the barriers were that were preventing those children having a right of access uh, to mainstream life. And I think, in summary, I discovered uh, three things. First of all, there was a straightforward constraint on resource. There was never enough money. Well, the lesson for us here is there's never going to be enough money so the challenge is to use what we've got as effectively as we possibly can. So if anybody in future hears me or anybody else saying, why are we spending as much money on that? Do we need to? It's not because I want to put it in my pocket or give it to somebody else. It's because I want to make it available for students who haven't got access to it. So effective use of resources is critical to um, uh, equality and diversity strategy in my view. The second thing is the inflexibility of the allocation of resources. We had a mainstream school over there that didn't have the resources to support students with disabilities because all the resources were over there in a special school, and we couldn't get them together. A lot has changed since then, I'm very pleased to say. Um, and we need to be flexible in the way that we use our resources as well. But finally and most fundamentally, the reason at that point, and still to some extent now, that children with disabilities in the school sector can't go to mainstream schools is because the system is not designed for diversity. And on our big challenge now, as um, uh, I think who it was, somebody said earlier, oh yes, it was Tony, moving from the margins to the mainstream. Our challenge now is to persuade everybody involved in the creation of courses in particular that careful design from the outset will prevent problems happening and will pull down barriers so we'll never to need to worry about making special arrangements. And that's really at the heart of uh, what Colin described as the anticipatory duty. So let's increasingly uh, design for diversity in everything that we do. Um, that's everything that I've got to say. Um, back to you, Derek. Yes, thank you very much indeed, Will. That was a very... <laughs> Will's just done exactly what I wanted him to do, which was to bring together the 
importance of the Equality Scheme um, in relation to the university's wider objectives. Um, just to give Chris and Angela a little moment to get ready, I wondered if, uh, I'm advised by uh, Lynn, who's been one of the key organizers of today, that some more coffee has arrived. So if people were feeling desperate, you could have a minute, but no longer, <laughs> uh, to go and grab a coffee, or you could do it while Chris and um, Angela are speaking. Are you going to, if I introduce? Well, I think I don't hear a, a massive stampede, so I'll assume that people who are desperate will, will, will go and do so. Um, one of, sometimes life is um, lucky, and, uh, you know, fortunate, uh, um, and uh, one of the things that really worried me when I first went to talk to Will back in January of last year was um, about who we might get to help us put together our equality scheme. And two very good ideas emerged from that very first meeting. One was that a, a very uh, experienced colleague who had retired from the university, Chris Tennant, after some 35 years service uh, as a, and eventually as a senior HR administrator, um, who had worked alongside me in lots of those developments that I mentioned earlier in Equal Opportunities, was available to take on the consultancy. And uh, one of the great advantages of that was, of course, that Chris knew the institution inside out, so I didn't have to spend a lot of the early days of consultancy, and we didn't have very many of them uh, altogether, um, in tr teaching her about this large and complex organization. The second good thing that happened was that uh, Will and I, um, Will asked uh, Angela uh, Schofield, uh, an experienced OU member, staff for many, many years, who's in recent years become regional director in our uh, East of England uh, region based in Cambridge, agreed to uh, chair the project steering group. And she was a very um, supportive, um, critical, and proactive chair, which is why I think Chris and I would say we ended up with a very sharp-looking scheme because Angela was on to us if she didn't think we were steering it in the right direction. So I now hand over to them um, with gratitude for all the work they did and ask them to introduce the detail of the scheme. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Derek. And uh, you all have a copy of this scheme in your pack, and it isn't too huge, so, so there you are, it exists. And I would like to say a thank you to all of those people who contributed. Well, it's easy chairing things. Other people have to do an awful lot of the work. So we'd like to tell you a little bit about the detail of the Open University's first disability equality scheme what it contains, what the key findings are, what we're doing to address the key findings, what we'd like you to do to help us. Because as several people have said before, actually having this, stuffing it on your shelf, all the work that we've done doesn't make two apeth of difference unless everybody engages with it. And that does mean each and every person in this university, not just the people who have some interest in or direct contact with people with disabilities. Everybody, everybody's work has an impact on their experience, and we do need everybody to engage right across the university. 
We're very pleased that it starts off with a leadership statement from the Vice-Chancellor because we do need that commitment from the top. Lord Lowe said this, that we need somebody who endorses the scheme, gives it authority, makes sure that we have that authority to implement it. There are lots of principles underpinning the scheme. I pick out just two for you. All people are entitled to dignity and respect, and Tony mentioned this. One of the others is disabled people know best their own requirements and should be enabled to make informed choices. And the disability equality scheme really does rest on that one. There's a section on the legal framework, and I won't go over that again because Lord Lowe's mentioned the legal framework very well, the social model of disability, links to the OU mission and its strategic plans, and the OU's distinctive characteristics, because it is rather different um, supporting students with disabilities, 10,000 of them approximately, across the UK and beyond, than it is sort of dealing in a residential um, university. So we've, the volume and the distance makes things very different for us. The involvement's been uh, mentioned before, that we have canvassed widely, that we have involved disabled students and disabled staff in the development of this scheme. And looking around this room, I can see some people who've made a major contribution in that respect. We've had online conferences, we've had face-to-face -face meetings, we've had telephone interviews, and we've gathered an awful lot of feedback. Now, some of that feedback was very, you know, individual. And where appropriate, we've fed that back to the, um, the necessary region of the, um, the uh, region or to the uh, department in the university so that they could look at it and take action. But one of the things that came out, there were a lot of common threads coming out from people. And we used those common threads to derive the key findings which are in this disability equality scheme. Also has in the scheme where we are now, including disabled students and staff, trend data, details of current support and provision. And this revealed some very interesting and useful information. And it provided benchmarks against which to judge our progress because we did, we did need to collate this information. A lot of it existed, but to bring it together in relation to disability so that we've got a set of benchmarks and this data is in the scheme so that we can see where we're at now and whether we're making any improvement when we put our action plan into place. Most of you don't need to dig into the detail of the plan, although I say it's not too um, thick to read, but there is a three-page summary statement and the action plan, and I think you do really need to look at the action plan to see whether there are things in it for you and your area that are actions, because Lord Lowe's mentioned, actually we have to deliver on those actions now we've put them in there, so we've uh, put our necks on the line somewhat. <coughs> The detailed data will be quite info, uh, useful for some of you, and there's something on the website too, which has uh, got a lot of background information. So there's a lot of statistical data there for those of you that are interested and want to go deeper than that. A lot of what I'm going to say and what Christine's going to say about improvements um, that we need to make, and Will has touched on these, but I did want to get a, give us a pat on the back first too. There's a lot of things that we are doing very well, and the people we consulted were full of praise and thanks for everything that we do. 
but they shouldn't really have to be thankful for it. The OU does do a good job, though. We've done a lot in the past, and we'll say that 85% of our students were satisfied with the services received. But we can't rest on our laurels. Things change. Expectations change. Technologies change. Ways of doing things change. So I think we've got to, we've got to be alert to what those changes are and keep on looking at ways in which we can do things differently and do them better. Now, I'm going to look, first of all, at what we could do to improve things for students. And my colleague, Christine's go on, going to go on and talk about what we could do to improve things for staff. I've mentioned all this qualitative data that we, uh, we've got, but we need some more. We have got this decline in, in new disabled student registrations. As Will says, he's already doing something about that one. So we're already implementing the action plan and some of the things that we need to know. Some of the things are more difficult. The data that we got indicated that disabled students withdraw from their studies more than other students, that there's regional fluctuation in the completion rates for students with disabilities, and that there are lower completion rates for students reporting mental health difficulties and personal care needs. That's just to pick out a few. And I think we need to move forward and try and find ways of finding out the reasons for those things so that we can take action to address them. Making the curriculum more accessible. We've talked about this sort of bolt-on. We've got lots and lots of things we do, with alternative formats and all sorts of things, but we do tend to bolt them on after course production. And I think one of the major things we need to do is be a lot more joined up. This is what stakeholders were telling us when they talked to us. Join it up. Think about it in advance. Don't bolt it on at the end. If you're designing a course, think about students with disabilities and what their needs are. Build it in. If it can't be built in, if it really can't be built in, say so and why. We don't need also to be thinking not just about the obvious types of disability. There are an awful lot of hidden disabilities out there, um, and we need to be aware of those too. And we need to look at the progression for students. I think our programme-based support that we're moving towards will help with this. Because at the moment, we'll mention, students can hit a barrier. They can get two or three courses in, have managed perfectly well, and then all of a sudden, it stops and they can't reach the qualification that they need. Now, that shouldn't happen. People should know up front, be informed, be able to know where they're going. And we need to plan for people to get right through their qualifications. What else could we improve? Enable students with disabilities to make informed and appropriate choices. This was something else that our students told us when we talked to them. One of the principles underpinning the disability equality scheme is that they know what's best for them. They want to be able to make their own choices about it. So we need to be able to give them better information. It isn't just about the content of the courses. We're very good at providing on our courses and qualifications website and in our brochures details about content and about what you need to learn. But a lot of students with disabilities need to know what you need to do to learn those things. They need to know about the processes and the skills they'll need. I think we need to be much more upfront about that and also to have a referral point for information for people. So much more explicit about the things you have to do as opposed to the things you have to learn. Staff development. We've still got quite a lot to go on this front. We do an awful lot of staff development. 
Lots of our staff have very high levels of disability awareness, uh, but students with disabilities continue to report examples of uninformed treatment. So there is still work to be done. We need to make sure that disability awareness training is embedded throughout our staff development programmes and particularly at induction. I think there's sometimes a tendency to have a big splurge on something. We think everybody's done and we forget about staff turnover and so on. So it is constant renewal and constant thinking about changes and different ways we can do things and challenging ourselves on that front. Accessibility of teaching, we still need to improve here. Um, I know it's ongoing and long-term, improving signage, lighting, information about access and facilities at tutorials, day schools, and residential school venues. I think some of you without disabilities would say that needs improving too. It's a very difficult area. We work at arm's length across the country with uh, in partnerships with others to deliver those sort of services but we do need to tackle it and to tackle it better and to think about those things and to build in audit procedures and regular reviews. We need to, um, I mean, virtual learning environment, as Will's mentioned, will be very helpful in improving accessibility for a lot of students. There will be people who haven't been able to attend tutorials in the past, who will be able to become part of the Open University's community, will feel more included and a part of what we do and be able to participate in tutorials. But there is a word of warning there. I think the virtual learning environment will also create barriers for some, and we do need to be anticipating what those barriers are as we go along and looking at ways to overcome those barriers. Technology was another area. We put in place a lot of things. We support students. We get disability, disabled students' allowances. But they were still having difficulties because having got their software, having got their computer, having been set up, you're then on your own and things can go wrong. And if your bit of software isn't quite compatible with the course you're studying, or if things don't start to work, where's the support? Now, the OU can't do everything and it may not be appropriate for us to deliver some of that support. But I think if it isn't us, we need to be upfront about it and we need to be saying where that support can come from. So I think much, much better signposting for students to help them with the support they need in keeping going, maintenance activity. And communications as well. As Will's mentioned voice for staff. There are lots of other areas. We are getting better. I think the new brand is helping. We've got more white space. We've got more accessible fonts that uh, we use. This sort of thing will really help. Improving signposting about available services. It was interesting when we sat down and talked to students. We have masses and masses of services available, but a lot of students who needed them hadn't been able to find them. And it was only by talking to perhaps other experienced students around the room who'd found these things out for themselves that said, Yes, I could do with that. Thank you very much indeed. And there was a real sort of self-help community. We could do something about sort of uh, fostering that self-help community. But I think we do need to improve signposting to our services. They shouldn't be buried so deep that people can't get at them and know what there is there and what, uh, what they need and what we can do to help them. So those are the key areas that came out. And that was, those are the key things that came out directly from feedback 
from students. There are other things in the action plan, but we have things to address those key findings throughout the action plan. Now I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Christine, who's going to talk to you about improvements for staff. Thank you, Lee. Good morning, everybody. Angela's been talking about the students, and I'm going to talk about staff and what sort of improvements we can make in the staffing area. Will mentioned the figures. Um, they don't look very good. There have been no significant changes in the numbers of disabled staff employed by the university for several years. 1.57% of internal staff, that's about 72 people. 3.57% of associate lecturers, around 300 associate lecturers. And that's disappointing for a number of us who've, who've worked in the area of staffing for, for years and have tried to take initiatives that would actually increase the number of disabled applicants and the number of appointees. The kind of initiatives we, we've taken include a guaranteed interview scheme, and that guarantees an interview for disabled applicants who meet the essential requirements of the job. We've put placed adverts in the disability press to promote the OU as a, a disabled-friendly employer. And we've participated for a number of years in the SCOPE leadership project. But they don't seem to have had any significant effect on the numbers of disabled applicants and appointees. So what can we do? Well, we need to look with our disabled staff and externally with disabled people why we aren't attracting or appointing more disabled people. We need to look at the impact of our recruitment and selection policies. We need to scrutinise the documentation that we use. Uh, we have a very um, intensive uh, selection process at the university, thought out very carefully. We have person specifications, we have job descriptions, we have further particulars. We have advertisements that, that have to meet a template. We need to look carefully at those and the selection processes, again, to make sure that we're not inadvertently creating barriers for disabled applicants. We need to consider positive action initiatives, and that's something Tony mentioned earlier. We need to look at what's, what other employers have been doing, what's been successful for them, and see if we can't adapt those sorts of initiatives for ourselves. And we need to consult national disability organisations more and see what guidance they can give us. The other side of improving the, the proportion of disabled people is that we're aware that people who may be considered as disabled under disability discrimination legislation may choose not to declare themselves as disabled, and that, of course, is their choice. But the sort of reasons that people may decide not to self-declare is that there are no implications for their job. They may become disabled during employment and they don't give us those details to say that their, their disability status has changed. Others may simply not be aware that they would be considered as disabled under discrimination legislation. So what can we do to increase that proportion of people who do self-declare? Well, we need to establish why people don't declare themselves as disabled. And one way of doing that may be to have an anonymous survey of staff to see what are the reasons for, for, for not actually giving this information. We need to raise awareness of the support available. 
to encourage staff to declare disabilities. I mean, the university has a, a, a system called the self-service system, which is an, an online computerised piece of software which enables people to change their own personal details. And this can be used in confidence, and we need to publicise the availability of that system more. Angela's mentioned that when we undertook consultation, there were a lot of favourable, favourable comments about the OU's policies and practices, but there were also concerns. There were concerns that experience of individual staff can vary from one area of the university to another, and that, that can depend on a manager's knowledge of disability issues or a knowledge of the way employment policies and practices should work. There was concern that appropriate ICT support isn't always available and that meetings and training courses sometimes don't take enough account of the people with disabilities who are attending. So we need to review the effectiveness of our training and development programmes and to make sure that they raise awareness of the policies and practices that we have so that we can ensure those policies and practices are actually are implemented fairly across the university. We need to make sure that managers and colleagues do have an understanding of disability issues and the impact of, on work of specific impairments. And we need to raise awareness of the available resources. And there's a huge amount of resource, as Andrew mentioned as well. I mean, there's vast amounts of information on the websites. We have a disability awareness resource pack for managers, a CD for managers setting out guidance on disability issues. We have a code of good practice on the employment of disabled staff. And we have a lot of staff with expertise in this area across the university. So the resources are there. In terms of the actual working environment, we know that there's been a major program of work across the university campuses and, and sites. Um, and that has, has done a lot of good work to improve the physical accessibility of the campus. But some staff continue to experience difficulties. And the kinds of um, examples that we, we were given of these were um, the height of meeting room tables and door handles for wheelchair users, toilet locks which are difficult to open, the clarity of signage, the difficulties with induction loops. And they're small, but they're individual issues and they're very important because without um, taking action to support and, and make sure that they're not creating barriers, then individuals won't be able to work uh, in as open a way as we would want them to. Staff need to be confident that we will address the issues that they raise. So how are we going to carry forward the issues that we've been talking about for staff and students? Well, we have a three-year action plan, which Angela showed you, um, and it is an action plan that encompasses a number of areas of the university. We'll be monitoring and reporting on the progress against that action plan. The aim of the action plan is to make practical improvements for staff and for students. The actions in the plan have been derived from the key findings, from the input from managers and from actions that are already underway. And the plan itself is divided into, into six key areas. Firstly, uh, infrastructure data collection and monitoring. Then we have curriculum planning, course production and presentation. Then student services, staff employment, accessible communication and accessible buildings. And we split those actions into development and maintenance. Each action has been linked to the key findings that have arisen during the consultation. 
Now, although the action plan itself might, at the first glance, seem extremely heavy to, to get into, some of the actions obviously only apply to certain areas, and a lot of those actions are already well underway. A lot of work is being done, we know. Several people have already said that we can't expect to achieve what we want to from the Disability Equality Scheme without the support of the OU community. We can write as many schemes as we, as we would like, but unless we have that engagement of staff, then this isn't going to work. So what do we want people to do? We want people to identify and carry forward the actions in their own areas of work. We want people to support the principles that are underpinning the scheme. And importantly, we want people to share initiatives and things that are working so that everybody can learn from them. This isn't a one-off, the Disability Equality Scheme. We need to keep the promotion of disability equality high on the agenda of university meetings, unit meetings and team meetings. We need individuals to take responsibility for updating themselves and to be aware of the resources that are available. We want feedback. We want to know what progress we're making against the scheme and the action plan. And please continue to highlight the gaps and the areas of policy and practice that aren't working well. We had a lot of positive feedback in the development of the scheme, and it was very heartwarming I think, when we saw the comments. But, and the OU needs to be proud of those achievements. But we can't rest on our laurels, and we know that there's a lot more that we can do and that needs to be done. So what next? Well, there will be an annual review of the action plan and how we're progressing against those actions, and we'll be discussing that with the units that are responsible for delivering specific actions. The disability scheme itself will be subject to a review after three years, and we've published the scheme and the action plan and the summary policy on the equality and diversity intranet and intranet sites. A lot of ideas and suggestions have come out of the consultation and the development of the scheme, and, and still come. We're still getting... Um, emails into the dedicated student email box and we're referring those to relevant managers so that they can consider those and see what they can take forward. We've asked students who took part in a very successful electronic conference and who, those who took part in regional focus groups <coughs> to continue to provide feedback on how they think we're progressing. And, and finally, we have asked, both in the scheme itself and on websites, that people do provide us with ongoing feedback. There's a dedicated student's email address box. There's a dedicated email address box for staff. And we've publicised references to the scheme on a variety of student and staff websites and in documentation that staff and students receive. And we will be looking at an ongoing involvement strategy for disabled staff and students so that they can continue to have opportunities to feed into and comment on our progress and on specific issues. Our overarching aim is that the scheme and the action plan will make practical improvements for staff and for students. That's current and future staff and students. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you very much to Angela and Chris. When I was putting this program together a few months ago, 
I thought it would be incomplete if we didn't include somebody from the sector who can bring us the external view. And Alan Hurst, who I was very proud to present for his honorary degree two years ago in recognition of his considerable input to the national um, development of facilities for disabled students across the country. And actually, Alan's name is well known in Europe and beyond these days. Um, I wanted you to, as, as an internal audience basically, to understand where the rest of the sector is in relation to what we're trying to achieve here. So we're not alone. We're not doing this on our own. We're doing it as part of a, a much wider engagement with uh, improving disability equality for uh, disabled students in higher education. So it's a great pleasure I introduce Alan Hurst. Thank you, Derek. Um... In some ways, to me, the Open University feels like a pair of old slippers in the nicest possible way. <laughs> I've been a student on your courses. I've been an associate lecturer. Uh, I've been an external examiner. I've been on a committee that selected a professor on one occasion. I've done some staff development sessions. And then, very kindly, the Open University honored me, uh, as Derek said, two years ago. So honors at a personal level, but also honored, I think, at a strategy level. Because I think what we're seeing this morning is amongst the best of the disability equality schemes that exist in the sector. If you want to see who I think your nearest rivals might be, have a look at the scheme produced by the University of Manchester and have a look at the scheme produced by Brunel University. And if you want to see how far you are ahead of the field, then have a look at the disability statement produced by the University of Central Lancashire. And I'll give you a clue as to where you can find it. It's on the student services part of the website. I'm saying no more in case it gets me into trouble. I think given what's gone on this morning, uh, this will be an end of session summary. I hope you find it useful. In fact, I hope it's not one of those presentations where there's so much power and so little point. Let's get on to the next transparency. Some of you have heard me say this before, but given the presence of two esteemed lawyers in our presence, uh, I thought it was a useful one to draw attention to. Skilled National Bureau of Students with Disabilities was 30 years old, and as part of the 30-year celebrations, I was asked to trawl through the archives and produce a very short article for the Skilled Journal. And one of the things that stuck in my mind was this quotation from a senior academic at one of the London universities in 1975. It would be impossible for a dyslexic student to cope with the vast amount of reading required by the learning and practice of law. Although it is possible for a blind person to study through the use of Braille and their usually excellent memory and even to practice, provided that they have a helpful wife or friend to read all the documents for them. So, Colin and John, we know where you've come from and how you got there. <laughs> Let's pass on then to look at the nature of change. I think what we've seen in the past 30 years is a change from fighting from basic access and getting the numbers of students with disabilities who disclose uh, raising to the quality of the experience that we give those students, in particular in learning and teaching. That's not to say that the battle is over. There are still barriers. I am currently involved in a project with the Disability Rights Commission at the moment, looking at barriers to nursing, to social work, and to school teaching. 
and in particular the issue of disclosure. People will not disclose that they have some kind of impairment because they feel it might bar entry to those particular professions. Whatever it is that we're doing, I think we do according to principles. And we've already had a mention of the social model of disability. And we've also had a mention of the importance of acknowledging some of the rights associated with independent living, particularly the rights to have choices and the right to take decisions about one's own life. I would argue that the right to choose where one studies is a blanket right. If I go back to my higher education uh, career in its early days, I chose as my university the University of Hull, and I went in 1963. And if you ask me why, there was a very good reason. Hull is the only city in the United Kingdom with two rugby league teams, and there was a match every Saturday. <laughs> Bizarrely enough, some 30-odd years later, my daughter chose the same university to do a degree in French, which is exactly the same as what my wife, her mother, did. But she was into a pop group called Beautiful South. And the lead singer of Beautiful South is a guy called Paul Heaton. And Paul Heaton lived on Grafton Street. And my daughter went and obtained a flat on Grafton Street in Hull. <laughs> and I would want the same width of choice to be extended to students with disabilities as well. Yes, they were in some ways silly reasons. But I would hope that the chance to have a silly reason is equally open to people with disabilities as it was to me and to my daughter. Let's move on to look at the context that we're working in. And let's begin with the financial context. We've certainly seen improved funding for students since 1990, particularly through the disabled students' allowances. The scheme as we know it today only goes back as far as 1990. Originally, it excluded part-time students, and that was a real bone of contention, knowing of the good work and the number of disabled students recruited by this institution. But if you're not familiar with the system, and the system is now pro rata and part-time students are included, the figures are that there is a general additional allowance of £1,565 per year. That's for additional expenses as a result of having some kind of impairment. There's an additional allowance of £11,840 per year, of course, for non-medical personal assistance. And the best example I can give you of that is sign language interpreters. And if you think that amount is quite a large amount of money, for some deaf students doing some courses, it's inadequate. My own university, three years ago, um, recruited a student to do a social work course. And because of the nature of the social work course, which had changed, and which meant that the student was in contact with tutors for far longer, the overall cost for providing interpreting services for that one student doing first-year social work would be £41,000. There was a shortfall, in fact, of £26,000. The final bit, the £4,680 for the purchase of special equipment, is given on a once-only basis, the view being that the equipment should last you through your academic career. That's only one side of the equation. What about finances for institutions? We've seen improved funding through, and Colin mentioned, the setting up of the Higher Education Funding Council and its legal duty to have regard for the needs of students with disabilities. A number of special initiatives, £3 million in various tranches right through until fairly recently. I can remember getting a letter just before Christmas 1993 from the committee at Hefke, which said, and I can remember the words vividly, the, um, the committee has agreed to allocate, and this is the exact words, a small number of millions of pounds. Nobody ever writes letters to me telling me that we've got a small number of millions of pounds. 
But it was £3 million, and it was, in terms of Hefke's budget, very little. And they got re really good value from the special initiatives, and always have done. Since then, we've seen the addition of a disability premium based on the number of students institutions recruit and their willingness to disclose. And we've also, at the same time, through different routes, seen funds to improve the physical environment. So that's the financial context. What about moving on to look at some of the other aspects of the context? The quality context. Colin mentioned the Quality Assurance Agency's Code Section 3, produced in 1999. Since then, we've had Sender, and we've had the latest uh, DDA of 2005. And really, my view is that we need to rewrite the Quality Assurance Agency Section 3 to take into account these changes, and also changes, I think, in the role of the Quality Assurance Agency itself. It's moved on from quality assurance to quality enhancement, and I would hope that that enhancement includes a view of the quality of the experience for disabled students. We've seen QAA subject reviews and QAA institutional audits move towards something that, in the words of the trade, is a light touch. And my experience of them is that the touch is so light that you wouldn't actually know that you've been touched. And that is very different from what some of the other institutional audits that I've been a part of uh, were about. We've seen the work of some of the higher education academies learning and teaching centers and the ways in which, for example, engineering and the earth sciences have all produce lots and lots of useful material uh, about meeting the inclusion needs of students with a range of impairments. We've seen a number of widening participation projects, and the example I put on the transparency is aim higher. We've been through a process of having national coordination, first of all through the small equip team, equality, equality in provision was the acronym for equip, and then more recently the national disability team. They were disbanded at the end of 2005, the view of the Funding Council being that all its activities are now dealt with mainstream. We've seen the rise of the Quality Assurance Group, and if you're not familiar with QUAG, QUAG is about looking at the quality of the assessments that students undergo in terms of having their needs identified in relation to the provision and the application for Disabled Students Award. And that relies on also the Federation, the National Network of Assessment Centres, NAMAC. I can, I think, pass over very quickly the next three transparencies. We are running slightly late, and I don't want to finish too late. The current legal position, we've mentioned the DDA, we've mentioned SENDER, we've mentioned the new Disability Discrimination Act. And in terms of the latter, there are the general duties, which Colin outlined, eliminate discrimination, eliminate harassment, promote equality of opportunity, promote positive attitudes, and encourage participation. And we've also got specific duties, the main one of which is to produce this disability equality scheme, and we've spent a lot of time looking at that. But one of the ways in which the disability equality scheme, one of the sections of the disability equality scheme is impact assessment. And what I want to spend some time doing now is looking at impact assessment, in particular in the context of learning and teaching. And I want to say a little bit about a project that I'm really proud to have been involved with, the Teachability Project in Scotland. This started originally with the four institutions, five institutions in the Glasgow area, and was gradually spread throughout Scotland. And the latest is that they're going to try and spread it through further education in Scotland as well. The Teachability Project involved going round to the higher education institutions in Scotland, working with teams of staff, and asking them basically five questions. 
Identify the ways in which a course or a program that you're familiar with is accessible to students with a range of impairments. A kind of instant response. Is it accessible? Well, think about it. And then four sub-questions. Are there barriers that prevent the participation of students with a range of impairments? And if there are, what are those barriers? Question three, how might the barriers be overcome? Question four, what needs to be done in order to implement the strategies? And the final question, how can we draw attention in an honest way to some of the potential and also to some of the challenges that students with impairments would face on particular programmes of study? Having worked with teams of staff in Scotland, at that point they all looked blankly at those of us at the front and we found we had to add another question. And that other question is the one that's on the screen now. What do you consider to be the core requirements, the core skills, which everybody should have on successful completion of the course, the subject, the program? Getting people to try to identify what the basic requirements are in five areas. Information and information provision, curriculum design, learning and teaching, assessment and quality monitoring. And I'll just say a little bit about each of those as we go through now. Starting off with information. How comprehensive is the information that we provide at pre-entry to those people who might be interested in becoming students? How accurate and honest is that information? How easily available is it in different formats? What about the images of disability that are used? I feel particularly proud of the information that we've circulated for disabled people this year because for the first time there are no traditional images of disabled people in it. So you don't see the token wheelchair user. You don't see the token blind person. You don't see the token deaf person working with an interpreter. All the photographs of students that are contained in that special information are head and shoulders shots which in our view, uh, do something to try to break down the stereotype notions of what disability is. Uh, if we pursue the stereotypes, we're probably doing a disservice to those people whose impairments are not visible. What about the language and the tenor of the information that we provide? Is it suitably warm and friendly? And what about, and we'll refer to this, electronic information, the website and the internet? I've said to people before about a wonderful website I came across whilst working in Scotland which had as its background a blue sky and which had in the foreground clouds gently rising up in this sky. And in order to get information you had to move your cursor, and that might be a problem for some people, to move the cursor, to uh, stick it on a cloud and then to click and pop the cloud, a cloud burst. And then you got information. Slight problem, the clouds were not labelled, so you didn't know what information we were going to get. So you could spend all afternoon kind of popping clouds. Hopefully, at the end of it, you would get the information you wanted. I say again, beautiful to look at, full marks for design, but in terms of its usability, no marks, I'm afraid. What about curriculum design? Moving us on to the second area. Attendance requirements. It's fascinating, isn't it? The fact that only yesterday... Back at base, I was chased about keeping registers in my sessions, people not attending. And yet, we're in an institution where attendance at sessions is not compulsory. 
I'll come back to attendance shortly because it ties up with some closing remarks I want to say. But what about things like fieldwork, study visits, home and overseas placements? What skills do students acquire through those processes that they cannot demonstrate that they've acquired already through other potentially reasonable adjustments? What about laboratories and workshops and studios? In the background somewhere is health and safety regulation. But if you've read a super booklet by Christine Rose about risk assessment, you'll see there ways of accomplishing access and inclusion for students where there might well be risk assessment and health and safety considerations. Special equipment and technology. And then finally, in terms of course design, core non-negotiable bits of courses. Moving us on to learning and teaching. It might well be that there are barriers intrinsic to the nature of the subject. It might well be that some students would find dentistry very difficult to do if, for example, they had cerebral palsy and fine motor control was difficult. There might also be those barriers that result from our chosen methods of teaching and learning. I use a lot of video in my teaching back at base, and I need to think about the implications of my use of video for students who can't see and students who can't hear. And there are fairly straightforward reasonable adjustments to help me overcome those as long as I can think about them in advance. And there are those barriers that are created inadvertently. I often turn around and whilst I'm teaching, talk to the whiteboard. Sometimes I get more sense from the board than from the students, but that's another question. But in terms of anybody lip reading me, as soon as I turn away from the front, I've lost communication. I need to maintain that heightened level of awareness. We need to think about the implications of learning in big groups. Again, using an anecdotal example, in my university, in a particular lecture room, if there is a wheelchair user in the particular group, they're either at the foot of the very steeply tiered lecture theatre on the stage with me, or they're in a kind of royal box arrangement which is towards the back of the room. I've got a slight problem with that because it, they actually stand out uh, because they're on the platform with me or they're in the royal box. My bigger problem, though, is the way in which they stand out if they're not there. I would want students with disabilities to have the same equal opportunity to skive from my lectures as the non-disabled students. And if the student in the wheelchair is not on the platform or not in the royal box, they ain't there. There are issues about learning in small groups, about the ways in which if we have students, for example, who have a visual impairment, it'd be useful for it to introduce ourselves and to say who's there. And that might be useful for the rest of the group because often... I make the mistaken assumptions that people know each other and they don't because they're only together for those two hours a week when they're with me. It's all part of modularization and so on. So learning and teaching. Moving on from learning and teaching to assessment. How much scope is there to negotiate and to be flexible? And what students need is early and clear information about the assessment requirements. How is the course going to be assessed? What are the criteria that are going to be used by which the courses are going to be assessed? And how are the criteria split up in terms of distribution of marks? There are physical environmental considerations in terms of arranging special facilities, 
is the special facility near to, for example, an easily adapted uh, lavatory facility? Is it near to technical uh, assistance should the technology break down? And it might be useful to make a distinction between what might be described as modifications to assessment, for example, giving students additional time, and alternatives, where if students might be asked to write something, if it were a deaf student, a British Sign Language using student, they might be able to present it in sign language and have the thing videoed. How much scope is there to make alternatives like that? And then the final one, allocation of responsibilities. My view is that whoever makes arrangements for assessment makes arrangement for assessment. Many of my colleagues who work in the sector will be familiar with the phone call which goes, hi, is that Alan? Yes, I've got one of your students here. One of my students is an education student. Oh, no, no, they're doing nuclear physics. How is it my student? And it's my student because I'm associated with disability. And it's that attitude that we need to move away from. Whoever does whatever it is, make exam arrangements, arrangements for open days and visits days, makes arrangements for open days and visits days, and that includes meeting the needs of people with a variety of additional requests. Moving on to quality monitoring and enhancement, as has been said already, a super opportunity exists to ensure that courses are accessible at the stage of course validation, or if courses are reviewed periodically, then to look at the ways in which the course is accessible to people with a range of needs. I think one of the success stories of my own university is that we've managed to get that into the validation script. I used to chair validations for the Faculty of Health and Postgraduate Medicine, and I did it for a number of years. And in the early years, it was a game between the Faculty of Medicine and the course teams and me. Who's chairing the event? Alan Hurst. Better put something in about disability. And, of course, I took the bait and, and asked them questions. Since then, it's become more serious. And so if we can build in universal design at the point of course validation and review, it's really good. In terms of the subject content, when I was chairing uh, events in the Faculty of Health and before that in the business school, I couldn't really comment on the content of the courses. But one of the things that I increasingly began to comment on or question was the extent to which the content of the program or the modules would allow something about disability to be included. It was a way of trying to raise people's consciousness. So if the degree happened to be in um, modern languages, shall we say, how much scope was there to introduce a view of disabled people in France, in Germany, in Spain? If it was a course in art and fashion and design, how much scope was there for introducing something about the design of clothing for people who are wheelchair users? trying to infuse this curriculum content with aspects of disability so that people's awareness is raised and maintained. And then two other things before we move on to my closing remarks. Disabled students' involvement and feedback, and we've, talk, we've heard about that this morning in terms of the DES, and the position of external bodies. And of course, external bodies themselves are now a part of the legal system. What about the wider curriculum context in which we're working at the moment? We have to produce program specifications. We work in a context where there are subject benchmarks. We work within a national qualifications framework. All of those things could be quite helpful in terms of developing inclusive curricula. We're working in a context where there are new funding arrangements. 
And those funding arrangements in particular from the English Funding Council involve mainstreaming disability policy. But despite all that, and I put it in capital letters on the transparency, there is a need for staff education on disability and inclusive learning. And you've got some fantastic work here, and Robin Stenham, who was responsible for the HEFKI project, is with us this morning. It's great to have Robin with us, and if you've not seen the work, then do have a look at it. So that brings me on to my closing comments. Where are we in the early days of 2007? Next one, three, sorry. We've made some progress in moving towards inclusive learning and teaching, but we've still got a major problem. And that major problem, I think, is changing cultures and changing attitudes. And as I'll try and demonstrate with a succinct quotation on the next transparency, that is not easy to do. I want to close with two contrasting comments. Some of you might be familiar with the work of Frank Ferredi, who writes a regular column in the Times Higher Education Supplement. In his column, dated the 25th of March 2005, the column was headed, Why I Refuse to Hand It to Students on a Plate. It's about dear old Frank being asked to provide lecture notes in advance. And if I do that, nobody will come to my lectures, will they? That's a very odd remark to be making in a context like we find ourselves in this morning where students got access to lots and lots of learning materials. There was no mention of disabled students in Frank Ferredi's article, but there are many people, I think, like Frank Ferredi in the, section, in the sector. And we've got to face up to the fact that we've got a difficult job. And I conclude with my final remark, thanks to an American colleague, Mary Johnson, who I think summed it up beautifully by saying, a law cannot guarantee what a culture will not give. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. That was a, a really helpful uh, concluding presentation to this morning's event. We are overrunning slightly, and I knew we would because these events always do, and it's been very pleasurable. I, I did want to just see if anybody had any really pressing questions from the floor, uh, but I also in particular want to bring one or two regional centres in who have been joining us this morning. Does anybody have anything... Any questions from the floor? Maybe I could then ask if there are any regional centres who would like to come in. <laughs> I don't know what happens now. Well, I'm sure we know that at least um, six of our 13 regional centres have been joining us this morning. Um, oh, we've got somebody. We've got Birmingham, have we? Hello, Birmingham. Could you switch your microphone on? Can you, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Thank you. It's region four here. I just wondered whether there were any plans for the Elton University to introduce compulsory staff training on issues to do with disability. And by staff training, I would obviously also include IELTS. In case people couldn't hear that, I think the, the question was, do the university have any plans to, produce, uh, to introduce compulsory disability equality training? 
Uh, and the second part was? Um, in terms of staff training, I would also include associate lecturers, of course, not just regional staff and permanent staff. I think I'll ask um, uh, Chris, I presume there was something in the action plan around staff development. About you might need to get near a microphone. The nature of training, and it's not, um, if you like, it's not an OU thing to say that people compulsorily have to, have to undertake training. That the required training is around recruitment and selection, and of course there are elements in there uh, which relate to um, the whole of the equality strands. The, the kind of the other side of trying to ensure that everybody gets the opportunity for training is around the toolkit and the, um, the electronic, I'm not sure what it's called anymore, but the diversity training that, that is actually on the internet that new staff are, are actually asked to undertake and is a resource there for existing staff. I mean, we, do, we do have um, a member of the training department actually in the, I don't know whether Emma you've got anything you, you can add to that. You need to come to a microphone, Anna, if you could. There's um, a diversity e-learning module available to all internal staff and associate lecturers to support induction, which also has a section in terms of knowledge and awareness on disability. I think, to, to add to that, I think um, I would say that uh, uh, as part of... Um, our Quality and Diversity Management Group, we have uh, Steph McGran, who's the Assistant Director of Staff Development, very much engaged with the issues around not just disability staff development, but broader equality staff development. So I think we can be confident that, uh, that you will see some new opportunities for training coming in. It might not always be face-to-face, -face, it might be more uh, modular training, but it will be there. Any other questions? Um, I don't know if it's possible for me to just um, ask a supplementary question regarding that question on training, but I do have some concerns about the fact that, this, that, that there may be modules online that people can choose to take, but is any record kept of who has successfully completed the modules, um, whether there is something in place that checks whether ALs have completed modules, um, because even if it was just in order to protect the institution, um, I would have thought that the Oxford University would have uh, would have made such training um, more a compulsory element than something you could opt into. You know, but it isn't an option; it's something we require to do. Um, even, even, as, even as I say, if it was just to protect the institution in any kind of legal case. Thank you very much. It's, it, for those who might not have been able to hear that properly, it was about uh, whether we log, uh, well, whether we should have an opt-out system, which would be new to our culture in re with regard to, to staff development, and whether or not we log, log people's uh, completion. Emma, could you briefly answer that? For all internal staff as part of induction, HR enroll all new staff to do the diversity e-learning module and records are kept of completion on staff LMS. Student services also have access to a database system which shows AL's completion and participation in it, and they're currently considering how they might monitor it as ALs don't have access to staff LMS. 
Thank you very much. Are there any other questions from any other regions, please? Thank you for that one from Birmingham, or those two from Birmingham. As time is pressing us, um, I think I'll move to the closing remarks. If I could just first of all, of course, thank everybody very much for the time and trouble they've taken in joining us and helping us to celebrate these two new uh, strategies. I think, um, as I said at the outset, it was an opportunity for us as an organisation to reaffirm our commitment. And that isn't, I didn't want in any sense for people here today or for our guests to think that we were at all complacent. I think the problem about um, our record of, of not always getting it right but being pretty good at what we do is that complacency could creep in. But we've got the regulators very helpfully um, uh, and the law very helpfully pressing us to enhance what we do. And I think in all of the messages that came from uh, people today, it's about, it's about not being driven just by the legislation. We want to go, Tony said, we want to go beyond the legislation. We want to do what we want to do anyway, but do it better. And uh, I hope that both these strategies today will give us the guidance and the actions that are required for the whole institution to engage with what I would see as a new era in equality and diversity uh, development. Thank you very much for your attendance here today. I thank the regional colleagues who joined us from a distance and from the unknown uh, friends and students and others we have looking at us uh, from the website. I would remind people who might want to capture uh, a replay of some of this that it will be available on the uh, stadium site. Um, it takes about 24 hours before it becomes available as a replay, but it will be there and it usually stays up for quite a number of months. All that remains really is me, uh, for me to thank our guests who've taken out the time to be with us today. I in particular want to thank uh, Lynn Watkinson, where's Lynn? Uh, who, um, as my PA, has done a great deal of the detail work in arranging uh, this event. And uh, without you, you wouldn't, without Lynn, you wouldn't have had a seat to sit on or a cup of coffee to drink. So thank you very much uh, indeed, Lynn, for keeping us on track. Uh, with all of the events. And I also want, of course, to thank the audiovisual team and the wider office team who've supported this event as well. So uh, with that, I'll say um, cheerio for now, and we'll um, be keeping you informed on, on the progress on all of these uh, strategies. Thank you. <laughs>